Welcome to the Compass Christian Church Weekly Sermon Podcast. For more information, visit us at compasslu.org. Good morning. Well, we're going to continue in the book of Ephesians. We're in Ephesians chapter 1, and I've titled this one, Ephesians 1, 7 through 10, United in Him. Last week we were chosen in Him, and this week now we're united in Him. So last week... Um, we talked about how uh, Ephesians is, in, in many respects, a grand gospel presentation. It is presenting the truth of God's plan, but it's doing it very densely. And so we're walking through this uh, very slowly. And what we saw with chosen him last week is God chose Adam and Eve. He chose humanity uh, to have dominion, and that that didn't go out go very well for him. So he chose Abraham, and he tried to uh, bless his enemies by choosing Abraham, and he gave Abraham a covenant and some promises, and then that sort of was up and down. And then it ended up working out through the nation of Israel. And then through the nation of Israel, he chose David, and then finally he chose Jesus, our Lord. And in choosing Jesus, he's the chosen one. You know, he's like uh, Neo in the Matrix. He's the chosen one. <laughs> Uh, he's, he's the one who gets chosen by God, right? And then because we are with him, remember the analogy I used last week was going to a bar in Hollywood with Ryan Reynolds. And if I'm with Ryan Reynolds, I can get in. But if I don't go with Ryan Reynolds, I'm not getting in, right? So we have to be attached to Jesus. We have to be attached to Christ. And in that way, collectively, we are the chosen people through Jesus our Lord. So this is not an individual calling. It's a collective calling. And the book of Ephesians, uh, as we've seen already, is a, is a collectively minded book. So uh, we're going to keep reading here in Ephesians, but before we do, I just want to talk about the four themes briefly again. Uh, the first theme is community-oriented versus individualistic. Sorry, Every you in the letter is plural, and so we've been reading them as y'all. And as I pointed out before, uh, Tim Mackey from... Uh, Portland, I believe, West Coast, Northwest Coast. He's the one who said that. So he has. There's no Southern influence here. I'm. I'm trying to be as unbiased as possible here. Um, and then we also notice the we versus you language throughout the letter. We're going to see that again today. Uh, the second thing is new creation and the new orders of things in Jesus. Uh, apocalypse, Revelation, seeing things clearly, the kingdom of God. All these things are sort of wrapped together. Um, and we're going to see that today as well, that there's a, a plan that God has, a new way that he wants things to be, and we're going to see that that's unification in him. Then the third one is unity in Christ, uh, Jew and Gentile, and uh, unity between heaven and earth. We're going to look at that from a couple different perspectives today. And then division or battle with the powers of the world. So uh, we're going to continue to see all, all of these themes and the importance of all these themes as we work through uh, this first chapter of Ephesians. So our question today is, what does it mean to be united in him, and what does that mean for our lives? So as I mentioned last week, uh, Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 is one really long run-on sentence in Greek, and so we're going to read through it again, and I want you to notice a couple things. We're going to notice the we's and the you's like we did before, and we're also going to notice uh, in all the in hymns like we noticed last week. So we're going to do that again. So Ephesians, I will just start in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of, Jesus, of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to y'all and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the Beloved." In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ, that's the Jews, might be to the praise of his glory. In him, y'all Gentiles also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who or which is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So, Again, really long sentence there, but uh, Ephesians begins by detailing that we are blessed in union with Christ. We have been chosen in him. We've received adoption through Jesus, our King. And as this letter continues, what we're going to see today is Paul uh, explains that we've received redemption through the blood of Christ. So let's now read the section that we're looking at this morning, starting in verse 7. In him, or in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth." I thought this was a, sort of a good unit for us to consider this morning, uh, a little bite-sized chunk here, although there's still a lot going on in these four verses. So we start here with, in him we have redemption through his blood. And redemption is a big idea, so I thought we should think about it for a little bit here. Uh, one way of thinking about redemption is thinking about it in the context of that culture at that time. And in that culture at that time, uh, the context was about slavery, usually about prisoners of war. Uh, Lynn Kohick is a scholar who did the New Inter uh, International Commentary on the New Testament uh, for Ephesians, the most recent version of it, and this is what she says about redemption. She says, the term is rare in the wider Greek world, and its meaning related to the idea of release or deliverance and often reflected payment of ransom for prisoners of war or slaves. And so if we think about this, in that culture at that time, unfortunately, you know, there was a slave market that was very public. So you could see publicly people being bought and sold in the city of Ephesus at that time. And I think this is an interesting mind picture for us to consider that we have been bought back from the systems of the world. We've been bought back from our adversary. And there's another story about redemption and about being bought from slavery that happens very early in the Bible. Can anyone tell me what that is? It's the story of the Exodus. It's the story of the Exodus. Um, and so let's go actually go back to Deuteronomy 7. This idea of uh, being, um, 
bought from slavery and, and the idea of the exodus, the, the leaving of the, the uh, area of slavery, the land of slavery, into free, in heading into freedom, it's a big biblical theme. Well, let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 7. We'll just read this. And this is God talking to the Hebrew people. It says in verse 6, For you are people holy to Yahweh your God. The Lord or Yahweh your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And I love what he says here in verse 7. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord or Yahweh set his love on you and chose you, for you are the fewest of all peoples. So he's like, don't get too excited about being chosen. <laughs> you weren't chosen because you were great. And then he's going to go on and say, he's chosen you. He cho- chose them because, verse 8, but it is because the Lord, Yahweh, loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord, or Yahweh, has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So God uh, helps them have a a little bit of moment of humility here. Uh, They weren't chosen because they were numerous. They weren't chosen because of their merit. They were chosen because of Abraham's merit and because of what Abraham did. So redemption is being bought out of slavery, being taken out of slavery and being made free, made free to serve God, made free to worship God, made free to do the things of God. So uh, there, there is another sense, though. So that's sort of one level of redemption is, you know, we have been bought with a price. Uh, we've been redeemed. We're no longer under this evil influence of the world. And again, the Exodus story sort of provides a historical backdrop uh, for that imagery. But the word redemption is used in a different way in Scripture as well. And in Romans 8.23, Paul uses that word to talk about the day when our bodies are fully made whole again. It's called the redemption of our bodies. So the current sense of redemption is we've been bought with a price and spiritually this transaction has been made where we're no longer under the authority of uh, the evil things of this world, but now we can serve God freely. So there there's like this spiritual level right now where we have redemption and we can be free to serve and do the things that God wants us to do. But like we saw in our kingdom series, uh, there is a now aspect to these things and then there is a not yet aspect to these things. So the now aspect is this bought with a price, the spiritual freedom that we have to serve God and do the things of God. But the future redemption is the redemption of everything. It's the redemption of our physical bodies. It's the redemption of the world around us, as it talks about in Romans chapter 8. And so uh, I just want to point out that with all these things in the context here in Ephesians, or at least many of these things, there is a, a now component to it, and then there is a not yet fuller uh, aspect to it. So when we think about, again, the Exodus as a template for this idea of redemption, Uh, We are, in some sense, in the wilderness. We are not in Egypt anymore, but are we in the promised land yet? No, we're not in the promised land yet. So there is a a freedom that we have now that we didn't have before Christ, but there is still a more complete freedom that we'll have in the future. Uh, We can turn back to Ephesians chapter 1. We'll get back to there in a second. When we think about redemption, I think it's interesting to think about it in the context of unity because if you think about, um, again, using the slave metaphor, when someone is a slave to something else, like when we were a slave to the systems of this world, were we in any sense unified with God? 
No. So when God pays for us through redemption, that starts this process of unification. It begins this process of unification. And so uh, redemption means that we have some sort of sense of unity with God spiritually. And I was thinking about uh, an example of this, of thinking about our lives and the, the paths that our lives take. I thought about Little Pilgrim's Progress. I don't know if any of you have read Pilgrim's Progress by Paul Bunyan, uh, but there's a modified, uh, modernized version of it for younger kids called Little Pilgrim's Progress. I've been reading it with Liam and Hannah too a little bit, but mostly Liam. And I wanted to share a little bit about the story of what it's about, and then uh, we'll apply it a little bit to this idea of, of unity. So in the story, Little Christian begins his life in a city called Destruction. So he begins his life in a city called Destruction, and various people, trades people come in, and they essentially share the gospel with them that there's this other city, there's this celestial city, and you should go uh, on this pilgrimage to this celestial city. They bring this book to them that's supposed to be like the Bible, and they explain people should leave the city of destruction, and they should enter on this journey. So like there's little characters they meet along the way. There's this owl named Evangelist that points little Christian toward the narrow gate that leads to the narrow path that leads to the, the king in the celestial city. So this leads Christian on a long adventure. And so the whole book is about this long adventure that this little rabbit takes to get to the celestial city. And now I love the imagery of Pilgrim's Progress. And I think that there's a lot to be commended about the way that you know, li- our lives are journeys. They are, we are moving through our lives and doing different things. But there is another way to look at this. And the other way to look at this is, what if Pilgrim's Progress was more about staying in the city of destruction, but being redeemed people of God, redeemed people of the king in the city of destruction, and serving him during that, uh, during that period of time. And then when the king comes, you get sanctified and is separated out at that time. So I think that, so both metaphors, I think, work for us. You know, we do go on a journey of life, but we also do, we are stuck here in the city of destruction. We're not leaving this city of destruction until Jesus comes back. Um, And so what does it look like uh, to be surrounded with darkness, to be surrounded by evil, but yet still be redeemed from that evil, from that darkness? And so I think that's um, what we have to think about. So, what I'm saying about unity here is when we think about redemption, this initial stage of redemption, our unity with God is not dependent upon the circumstances that surround us. Our unity with God is dependent upon our relationship with him and through Christ. So that's a little bit about redemption. And of course, there's always more to think about there. Let's read verses 9 and 10 here again. Making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, God's purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So again, the plan that it's describing here that starts with our redemption and continues into verse 10, that plan is to unite all things in him. That's the the key point in this passage. But before we get to that that part, I want to talk about a couple of the words that uh, come up here because uh, we've been trying to, in this series, uh, think about Ephesians in a new and fresh way. And there are some words here that many of us have a history with. <laughs> and so when you have a history with a word or with a concept, I think it's, it's worth taking the time and slowing down and really thinking these through. And so I want to start with the word mystery here at the beginning of verse 9, making known to us the mystery of his will. 
Now, the word mystery in its simplest sense just means something that was either not revealed or not clearly revealed, but then God has chosen to reveal it. It has since been revealed. And I wanted to, to read what uh, Clinton Arnold, we, we met Clinton last week in our sermon. He did the ZIBBC commentary on Ephesians. This is what he had to say about mystery. Mystery was a term widely known in the ancient world. Many of the Gentile converts in the Ephesian churches have probably experienced ritual initiation into one or more of the mystery cults, such as the cult of Artemis, Isis, Sybil, or Dionysus. They are called mysteries because the adherents were sworn to secrecy about what they experienced. It's interesting. The mystery Paul is talking about here is substantially different from this. He is speaking about God's plan that can only be known through revelation. The same use of the word occurs in the book of Daniel to describe Nebuchadnezzar's divinely inspired dream about God's plan for the ages. The word Paul uses for made known, norizo, also occurs in Daniel for God's revelatory activity. So the idea of a mystery would have connected for them, but this is sort of like a subversive usage of the word. They had a specific idea of what a mystery was, and it was like a cult initiation progress and process, and you're supposed to keep it quiet. And here, on the other hand, we're talking about the gospel message, which God has told that we should go out and share it and proclaim it. So this is a completely subversive use of the word mystery. But the point, uh, the point I'm trying to make here about the word mystery is a lot of us have, uh, when, when I use the word mystery, we already have this theological framework behind what that mystery is. And I just want to point out that here, Paul describes what the mystery is, the way he's using the word here in the context. So I'm just going to read it. Making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So what is the mystery here in this specific context? The mystery that he's explaining to them right here is that God had an eternal plan that he's now set forth in Christ. And that plan is to unite everything to himself. That's what the mystery is in this specific context. Now, he's going to talk about in chapter 3 how a large aspect of that is Jew and Gentile together in the same body. That's, he's going to talk about that in 3. But the bigger concept that, that lies behind Jews and Gentiles being united is God's going to unify everything in Christ. That's the, that's the plan. The plan is to unite all things. So now that brings me to the second word that I want to talk about here that's a little loaded, and that is in verse 10. And the ESV translated this word as plan. The Greek word is oikonomia, and in the King James, it's translated dispensation. So you, some of us might be familiar with that language of dispensation. Uh, the NASB, which is another literal Bible, uh, has administration in the 1995 version, and then they decided in 2020 that the ESV got it right, and so they picked plan for, for the 2020 edition. So I want to talk about what this word meant in that day and time. So here's what the BDAG, the Standard Greek Dictionary, says about this word. Uh, this word plan, uh, usage one, a responsibility of management, management of a household direction office. So that could be like a stewardship. That might be the word that might connect for us. Uh, number two, the state of being arranged, arrangement, order, plan. In other words, the thing that a steward does is plans, administers, does things. And then three, the program of instruction training in the way of salvation. 
Now, the BDAG thinks that, and now of course this is up to interpretation, but the BDAG thinks that uh, definition 2 applies to Ephesians 1.10, and they say that in the linguistically difficult passage 1.10, referring to Ephesians 1.10, oikonomia certainly refers to the plan of salvation which God is bringing to reality through Christ in the fullness of times. I think it's funny when uh, scholars say certainly when there's, it's open to interpretation, but that's great. They were very certain about it, I guess. Uh, they think definition two works, and that's why, again, the ESV uses the word plan there. Now, some have taken this word, uh, oikonomia, to mean like a period of time, like there's specific periods of time that God set forward throughout the Bible. And I, I'm not, this is not to say that that system of belief is, is wrong or bad or anything. That's not what I'm trying to get at. I'm just trying to get at what does this word mean here in Ephesians 1.10. And in, here in the context, I think, uh, I think plan as a translation does make sense. Because um, we're talking about God's wisdom and insight. We're talking about the mystery of his will. We're talking about his plan for the ages. So I think this is describing... Um, Christ's role in administering the plan that God has set forward. And that's where Lynn Kohick lands in her commentary on Ephesians. I'm just going to read this here. It says, The term okonomia can carry an active sense of administering a plan or refer to the plan itself or can signify the administrator him or herself. Paul likely uses the first meaning here in 1.10 and the second meaning in 3.9, where Paul describes the plan in relation to the mystery hidden in ages past, now made, known, now made known to the rulers and authorities of the heavens. This plan, therefore, carries a sense of fulfillment of God's design chosen before time, revealed in Paul's time in Christ, and moving to a realization of unity of all things in Christ. So what Kohik says here is, is that um, basically this is talking about Christ's role. This verse is talking about Christ's role in administering this plan that God has set forward from the beginning of time. And that plan, again, is to unite all things in him, in Christ. So I wanted to think about this a couple different ways, this understanding of unity. So I've got a couple of slides. And I'm a, I'm a, I'm a math guy. I'm a geometric guy. And so there's a couple of, of ideas I've got here. And, and if you like them, great. If you don't, then we can talk about other ways to think about it after the service. Uh, but here we've got on the left hand, and I wanted to represent sort of two different ways. Uh, but here on the, on the left hand side, you've got two uh, groups of people. You've got Israel and you've got the Gentiles. And then you've got this new group of people, the church. And through Jesus, both of them get into the church. That's how both, both people experience. So so the unity, in other words, God has given us a, a way to experience unity on the human level amongst other people in humanity, and that way to do it is through Christ, through Jesus. Another way of looking at the exact same thing is on this right-hand side. You've got Gentiles, and you've got Israel, and you've got the church. And the, the way I sort of thought about it is imagine that, that when the kingdom comes, there won't be three circles anymore. It'll just be one circle. It'll be the people of God all together. So imagine that as unity increases, these two circles start overlapping more and more with the church one until it's completely overlapping. So God has started this plan of unification, and over time, this is moving closer and closer together until Jesus comes back. Um, and, you know, it's not going to get all the way there until Jesus comes back. I'm not saying we're going to bring it to pass ourselves or something like that. But the point that I'm trying to make here, though, is, is that God has had this plan to unify all things from the beginning of time, basically, we could say. 
and he has taken actions through Christ and in Christ to make that happen. But do we experience this in its fullness right now? No, because not everyone's in the church. Not everyone's in the church. Not everyone's part of the people of God. And so God has this eternal plan, and he's going to fulfill it, but we're in the stage now where it's underway. And while it's underway, who's administering the plan? It's Christ who's administering the plan. So that's what Paul's talking about here in verses 7 through 10. There's another way of thinking about this. this these are both just small categories of unity in this grand scheme of all things. All things. So the second thing is this idea of the powers we've talked about a little bit. And the powers are uh, really anything uh, that could uh, influence our lives in some way. And sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad. Um, the earthly powers on the bottom here, uh, Tim Mackey talks about things like speed limit signs being powers. Because when you see the speed limit sign, what do you do? You change your behavior, right? It, <laughs> Jerry's like, I speed. <laughs> well, then... <laughs> There are powers called police officers that might choose to pull you over if you decide to do that. Uh, so there are these things in place that help our society have structure, and, and th those can be good things. But um, there's also earthly powers that are things like Caesar or like our modern president. Um, and so there are these there's governments and administrations and different powers. Now, are all those powers in sub subject to Christ? No. no. Um, and so you have these cosmic powers. These cosmic powers, again, some of them are angels that are under the authority of Christ and who are obedient. Some of these cosmic powers are not obedient to Christ, right? And they're not going to be until they get thrown into the lake of fire, apparently, you know, essentially. So, um, and then you've got Jesus who's above all these things. And Ephesians describes Jesus as in charge of all these things, even though some of these things are disobedient. Jesus is our Lord. Are we always obedient to him? No. So we're, in some sense, we're already under his authority, but in another sense, are we completely unified with him? No. And the same is true, of course, for the other powers that we're talking about. So again, imagine when Jesus Christ returns, that red circle starts to overlap these other ones until everything is perfectly under the authority of Jesus. So he's been placed above all these things. But that doesn't mean that functionally speaking, it's actually going that way. And we can think about this, too, in light of the kingdom uh, with creation. And in, in Romans chapter 8, which I mentioned before, when it talks about the redemption of our bodies, it ta also talks about the redemption of all creation. And the prophet Isaiah talks about the, you know, the deserts blooming and all these animals uh, living more complete, full lives in harmony with humanity in the kingdom of God. So that's another way we can talk about unity. And it literally goes on and on and on and on. There's all these different ways of talking about unity. And God has made a plan for all these things to come to, come to pass. It's just in, pro it's in process. It's not completely there yet. I have another example, an interrelational example of how we can think about unity uh, with other people. And this is specifically one other person, um, either a close friend or if you're married uh, with your spouse. Uh, there's a, a beautiful sculpture called Love by an artist named Alexander Milov. And what it re represents is it's two, two adults sort of in despair and probably anger and frustration uh, facing away from each other. They've probably fought or whatever the case might be. And so they are too proud to reconcile. They're too angry. They're too frustrated, whatever the case might be. But their inner child 
inside of them, deep down inside of them, is facing toward the other and has their, their hand reaching out to the other person. And I think it's a beautiful representation. At least it, when I saw it, when I first saw it, I was like, man, that's how I feel when I fight with my wife. <laughs> I feel too proud sometimes to turn around and rectify things. Uh, but the point that I think this sculpture makes, at least, how, at least how I interpret it, is deep down inside, we have this inner child who craves unity, who craves uh, to have that connectedness. And, um, and so I think, you know, that's why in our society, uh, there is so much pressure to conform with, you know, to go with the flow. Because we, deep down inside, crave unity. We want unity, so we go with the flow. We uh, feel pressure to conform. Um, you know, some of us uh, feel that more than others of us. You know, some of us are very independent. And they're like, oh, I don't really feel like I need to go with the flow. <laughs> but mo- many of us do feel that way. Uh, we all do have a deep desire, though, I think, to be united. Now, many of us have a strong sense of what's right and wrong. So generally, when we feel this, I think a lot of us feel it in the way of, I want you to be with me. <laughs> I want you to come to my church. I want you to come do the things that I'm doing because, hey, I've got it all figured out, right? Like, I, I know what I'm doing. Um, so we want people to be on the same page as us. That's what it sometimes manifests as. Um, but the point that I'm trying to make is we all desire unity and um, but I want to point out, too, though, that it's not, we're not seeking after just any kind of unity. It's, there's not just any kind of, like, the lack of conflict or something is just an end to itself. Because unity that's based on lies, that's not unity. Uh, unity that's based on control or social pressure, that's not unity. Unity that's based on manipulation, it's not unity. And I've experienced some of those things before. So even though we all have, I do believe, a deep desire for unity, we desire a true unity, a healthy unity that's based on truth, love, respect, joy, wisdom, you know, godly things. And that's the plan that God has to unite all things in him. It's not going to be a fake, false, bad unity, incomplete unity. It's going to be complete unity. So... What does that mean for our lives? I want to talk about the four layers of interpretation. We've talked about it the last couple of weeks. So we've already looked at what the text would have meant to them, how redemption would have triggered in their mind, what, what mystery would have triggered in their mind. Um, so how would they have applied it? Well, in the original context of Ephesians, I think the Gentile, mainly Gentile audience would have been thrilled. Again, we talked about this last week, but I think they would have been thrilled to know that they were part of God's plan of the ages and to know that they were united with Christ, with the people of God. And they would have been excited to know that they now had a task to share that great plan of redemption with other people. Very practically, this would have meant, even though Paul doesn't talk about this in this letter, he talks about it in the Galatian letter, uh, it would have meant that they could have eaten with Jewish Christians and not felt those divides. And so they could experience a real unity with those in the faith. And that they also could have confidence that God would bring his plan, this plan of the ages, to completion. So that is what they would have thought about it and how they would have applied it a little bit, at least on that. So what does the text mean to us? Well, we can find ourselves in uh, verse 13, in him you also, y'all also when you heard the word of truth. We can now fold ourselves into this section through that. 
And so we are part of God's eternal plan as well. And so we can similarly, again, we know that this plan is in process. It's not all the way there yet. And so we can find joy in seeking to be unified with the brothers and sisters who are under Christ's authority today. And this is what Lynn Kohick said about it. She said, if this is summing up the, of the argument, believers today can prioritize their thoughts and actions to reflect what is to come. For example, forgiveness of sins, therefore, is not a simple washing away of evil dirt, but preparation for a unity enjoyed by the entire cosmos in Christ. Again, redemption in Christ's blood points to a future when all things are reconciled in Christ. These emphases might cause individuals to look at the conservation and care of creation with new vigor. Finally, adoption into God's family and the subsequent expectations for blameless living allows believers to participate in an eternal unity of perfect order, harmony, and joyous grace. Such truths refocus believers' attention today on the importance of connecting with and supporting sisters and brothers across the globe in partnerships of loving equality. So again, we have this idea of God's plan. It's in progress. It's not all the way completed yet, and yet we can still participate in it now. And one way to participate in it now is interpersonally, like I said, with the, the love sculpture, with the people that we're uh, surrounded with, like I said, our spouses and close friends. We can experience interpersonal unity in this relationship with Christ. We can also experience it in a larger Christian community setting like our church. Uh, we can also seek to support ways that God is working throughout our city of Louisville, like we do with Wayside Christian Mission, uh, with some of the other groups that we've been working with, like Spark Hope. So we can see Christian community here as a body in the area of Louisville and then around the world with other churches uh, like Living Hope in, uh, in New York and like Living Faith in Rhode Island and our other uh, friends around the country and around the world. And so that's what it means. Uh, Paul's later going to say in Ephesians 4 that we should endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. That starts here by recognizing that this is God's plan. God's plan is for everything to be united in Christ. And so there are small actions and big actions that we can take individually and collectively to help make this happen. And again, we're not going to do it to the point of making all the circles overlap or, or bringing Christ to earth or anything like that. But God has a plan for unity. Why not cooperate with that plan now? Why not live that way now in such a way that shows people what God's plan looks like? Because when, when people see what unity looks like in a church, when they see what unity looks like in a marriage, when they see what unity looks like among friends, that's when they can see this picture, a brief picture of this plan that God has to unite everything in Christ. It's a way of showing the kingdom of God to the people around us. So that's what we can do this week. We can reach out to people with this message of unity, uh, this message of peace, helping them to experience the goodness of God just like we have. And better yet, we can live it in a, such a way that they are compelled to take a second look at the things of God because they can see that unity that lives in us, that we have been united in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for this plan that you've made from the beginning of time that you uh, have revealed to us now and that you have set forth and made so clear to us. We ask that you help us to be people of unity, people of peace, 
people that reconcile others back to you and back to your son and to each other, Father, that we could live in such a way that compels people to seek that unity. So, Father, this morning we ask for help in doing that. We ask for you to enliven this plan in our hearts and to help us see the importance of living this way and to, uh, to enable us to live it out in powerful, unique ways. So, Father, we pray over our marriages, over our friendships, over the people in this room and for the communities that they're involved with near and far and for those uh, communities that we don't know much about, Father, that are still serving you and, and endeavoring to live this unity as well, that we could be united with them spiritually even though we don't know them. So, Father, we're just thankful for your big plan, for the bigness of it and how we can see it and be captivated by it and for the littleness of it and how we can live it in just our own lives with our kids and with our spouses and with our friends. We thank you for your help doing that. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to the Compass Christian Church Weekly Sermon Podcast. For more information on how we are striving to follow Jesus together here in Louisville, Kentucky, check out our website, compasslou.org, where you can subscribe to our newsletter and view additional resources.